Well, it is, as always, good to see all of you here this fine Sunday morning. You can go ahead and open up in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 3, going back to the same passage where we've been, uh, 1 John, chapter 3, and happy Memorial Day to all of you. I know this is always a special time of year to remember the sacrifices of those who have gone before us to give us the freedoms and to maintain the freedoms that we so readily enjoy. Uh, and it's good for me uh, that my wife's birthday coincides with Memorial Day because every year I hear the slogan, never forget, and the whole culture is telling me to not forget my wife's birthday, which is today. And many of you have wished her a happy birthday, and I will bring those tidings back to her. She's at home this morning with two girls who have head colds, and so she couldn't be here. Uh, but it is her birthday. And my um, daughter, Emma, who is five and a half now, Last night, as we were putting her to bed, uh, she summarily dismissed her mother from the room and said, Mommy, you need to leave now because Daddy and I have to make ourselves some plans. <laughs> and after Michelle had left, she says, she whispers, Daddy, and you have to close the door. So close the door. And after I closed the door, she proceeded for five minutes to explain to me the plan that she had for this morning to wake up early and bring Mommy breakfast in bed, which I thought, okay, well, that's going to be a little early, but you know, it is her birthday, and she's so excited about this. Who am I to stifle her expression of love for her mom? Great, we'll do it. She said, well, make sure you set a timer on your phone to wake us both up so we can go and do this together. I said, okay. So I set a timer on my phone for reasonably an early hour, you know. Well, at 2 o'clock this morning, <laughs> I'm laying there in bed, and I su suddenly became very much aware of, you know, this hot breath on my face. <laughs> And I look over, and there's my daughter Emma whispering, Daddy, it's time. We have to get up. <laughs> what kind of breakfast were you planning on making this morning? I said, no, Emma, it's not time. It's way too early. Go back to bed. Are you sure? I said, yeah, we'll have plenty of time. Don't worry about it. I set a timer. 3.30. <laughs> Daddy, you forgot. I knew you were going to forget. You forgot. It's time. <laughs> no, Emma. I did not forget, go back to bed. I will come and get you when it's time. 5.30 this morning. Daddy, it's time. And my alarm went off. <laughs> I said, okay, it's actually time. So we made breakfast, and it was a great morning. And, uh, but it, it, was, it was a good reminder to me of someone whose love for another causes them to do unreasonable things, Right? It causes them to take action. When you love someone, you act out upon that love by doing certain things that demonstrates your love for that other individual. And that's exactly what my daughter was doing this morning. She had no spiritual connections at all in her mind as she was doing that. But it was a great illustration to me of the spiritual profound reality that the Lord's love for us caused him to take specific actions for us that anyone else would look at and say, that's unreasonable. And it's then our love in return for him that causes us to love him enough to act in a particular way according to the love that we have for him. 
And that is a profound spiritual reality, and it is really what is driving this passage here in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Now, I know it's been a while since we've been together, a lot of things going on, but I just want to catch you up here briefly. For a number of months, we spent a lot of time together tracing the doctrine of God's love through the minor prophets, and as we came up out of that study, we came here into the book of 1 John, particularly verses one two, and three, because in these verses, we begin to get an understanding very clearly of the significance of God's love for us and that connection to our practical Christian walk on a daily basis. And so coming out of that series, having examined the great love of God for us, we were left to ask ourselves, so what? What do I now go and do with this profound doctrinal reality that God loves us in so many different ways? And 1 John 3, 1 through 3 really is the answer to that question. And we've seen that very clearly. And we've been given clear instructions. If you back up to chapter 2, verse 28, here's what it says. The Apostle John says, Now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And the latent question that just screams at us through both of those verses is how? How do I live in such a way as I contend with my flesh in a fallen world so as to have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame when he appears? How do I do that? And really what follows in these next three verses, verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 3, are a very clear prescription for us as to how to walk rightly, how to walk uprightly, and in a way that is pleasing to our Lord. And really, in verse 1, we discover that it is all connected back to his love for us and our then reciprocal love for him that grows from our knowledge of his love for us. That is, to put it simply, just going back to the outline we've been using, what we must know. Here's what John says, see, know this, How great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. He's saying if you would grow as a believer, if you would walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord so as to not shrink away from him in shame when he comes, then you must know this, that God loves you, and as a result, you are now his child. And that then comes with some ramifications, and that led us down into verse 2, which is really an explanation of how spiritual growth takes place and what its great objective is. John says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. So if verse 1 is, here's what you need to know. Verse 2 is, here's how you grow. And the simple definition that we found in verse 2 as we looked at that together is that you grow as you look at the person of Christ and see who he is. Because the ultimate objective of all spiritual growth is what? Conformity to the image of the person of Jesus Christ. And as you see him, 
you begin to understand what it is that God is seeking to accomplish in you in restoring you into his image. So that's what you must know. That is how you grow. And then we come down to verse 3, which really is the final text in this passage that we're going to look at together. And here we're going to see now what we must show, right? Now that we know all about his love, now that we understand how we grow and the ramifications of that love, now we have to look at what are the expectations that as a result of that love and as membership in his family are placed upon us. Here's what verse 3 says, and this is our text for today. It says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is what we are now to do. This is what we are to show in light of our citizenship as a member of his family. Now, there's a very important clarification before I jump into that verse and really give you the prescriptions and the steps for spiritual growth in that verse. I need to make a quick comment because this message really is a great companion piece to the convicting message we just heard this morning on the fruit of the Spirit. And it's very important to understand, okay, that it is God... He is the one who, through the power of His Holy Spirit, is ultimately the one who is responsible to produce holiness in your life. That's why the fruits of the Spirit in that passage we heard about this morning are called fruits of the Spirit and not fruit of your effort, right? Because God is the one who produces those things in you and makes you holy. So He ultimately is the one who is responsible for the production of holiness in your life. He's the one who gives you the desire to be holy, the strength to do what's right, the motivation to persevere through both trial and temptation, and we are wholly dependent upon Him. So as we go through the rest of this passage that is very much focused on your obligation, do not lose sight of the fact that all of that obligation and all of that effort is conducted in full reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Having said all of that, it's also important to remember that the Christian walk is not a let go and let God kind of a proposition, okay? Because when you sin, you can't blame it on the Holy Spirit's lack of effective work. And that might be the logical conclusion that someone would come to. If it's God that's responsible for producing holiness in me, when I am not holy when I sin, therefore that must be his problem, right? Paul says, far be it from me. May that never be true. That clearly is not the case. That's on you. You see, there is work, there is spiritual sweat that must be encountered in order for the process of sanctification to progress. And that is the side of the equation that we're focused on here this morning. As God, through His Holy Spirit, develops the fruit of the Spirit within you, as He conforms you to the person of Christ, what are we to do in response as we work towards our sanctification with fear and trembling, as the book of Philippians says? You see, we do have responsibility, even while we acknowledge God's sovereignty in this process. And see, I think we can just turn real quickly to the book of Romans. Keep your finger in 1 John. Because Romans chapter 7 really does a great job, the Apostle Paul does a great job of capturing all of this very difficult 
process of sanctification, the, the conflict between the two natures that we have and the fact that God is doing something in us and that we want to do that which we do not do. He says in verse 15, For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, wretched man that I am, Paul says, who will set me free from the body of this death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But for our purposes this morning, our takeaway from that passage is to understand that sanctification in your life is not done right now. Because all of us, as we walk through our daily lives, feel the difficulty, feel the pain, feel the challenge that comes from life in this fallen world. So while we know and acknowledge that God is doing a great work in us, we still have to come back to this passage today and hear the admonition that the Apostle John gives us to purify ourselves, to go to work and to purify ourselves. And we have to spend some time thinking through what that means for us. So, as we wait to see who we will be when Christ appears, as we anticipate that day, what do we do even now to continue furthering process in sanctification or the process of becoming holy, the process of becoming conformed to Christ? What do we do? And in verse 3, John gives us two essential steps to spiritual growth. And I don't want us to miss these steps because they are very, very important to your part in the process of sanctification. Okay, ready for them? Two steps, here they are. Number one, strengthen your faith. Number two, purify your life. And we'll break each one of those down as we go through this verse here this morning. Now, this is a short verse, only 16 words long, but every single word in this verse bears weight. And we're going to do what we can to squeeze everything out of it that we can in the next 35 minutes or so here. Now, right away, starting off there, as we look at this idea of strengthening our faith, there's a very important conjunction that's given to us there in verse 3. And it's the very simple word, and, right? which in English, for those of you, if I can take you back to your, your freshman English class, EN 101, it was called for me, I learned in that class that the word and is a coordinating conjunction. It connects what comes before with that which comes after, okay? It's a technical way of saying uh, you got to look back at verse 2, okay? That's what's going on here. You can't read verse 3 apart from verse 2. He says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has that hope fixed on him does something. It's very important. You see, John is making a tight connection between the end of time when Christ comes back and we are conformed perfectly into his image 
to what we are to do right now today as we wait for that to take place. So very important conjunction there as he's connecting these two thoughts. Here's what we have to understand as we jump off into verse 3, that a strong faith is always a, an assumed prerequisite for spiritual growth. You see, John doesn't state this, have a strong hope as a command, because it's really an assumption in the text. It's a prerequisite. He's assuming that if you are a believer and if you understand the theological reality that Christ will one day return and make you just like him, then you will automatically have hope. Your faith will be strong in looking forward to that day. So he doesn't need to state it as a command here because it really is an assumption that he's making that you will have this hope. Everyone who has this hope then does the following. So the first thing that is necessary to grow spiritually is for you to have a strong faith. And let me make a bold statement based upon that this morning. No one with a weak faith has ever made sufficient progress in their sanctification. You show me a man who is holy, and I'll show you a man who has strong faith. In order for you to grow spiritually, in order for you to show a holy life that is attuned to the love of God on your behalf, you, your faith must be well-maintained. It must be strong. As you look forward with a singular purpose down the road towards the day when you will see the realization of your great hope. And that's why John focuses step one here in this practical section upon your faith. He, he calls it here hope. He's essentially saying, do you believe that the love of God as manifested in the person of Christ is real? Do you believe that this truth will manifest itself in your future glorification with Christ? Do you believe that or not? And he turns our attention onto this issue of having a strong faith, a strong hope, and, and pinning all of our spiritual progress directly to this idea of having a strong hope in what God will do within us in the future. So let's talk about this idea of hope or faith a little bit and ask some questions about it. What Number one, what is this hope that he's talking about? Oftentimes, that idea of hope can be very much lost on us because we're so used to hearing about it, right? We all understand that Christians are to be people who have a strong hope. And there's one commentator who talks about the fact that when he was a missionary to a lost foreign tribe in Africa, he was teaching these people how to translate the text over into their language. And when the natives got down to this verse and read that they have this hope that is fixed upon Christ, knowing that he is going to appear and that they would become like him, they shouted out, they stood up and shouted out, no, this is far too much. We cannot write that down. Let us write instead, we shall kiss his feet. You see, they could not begin to process and comprehend the greatness and the magnitude of what it meant for them to become like the person of Jesus Christ. To them, that was too wonderful to comprehend. They could not begin to fathom it. And so often, because we're so familiar with it, we lose our, our view of the scope of this great hope. 
And we can't do that because John is saying here, it's the hope that enables you to go through the painful process of purification right now. So what is this hope? Well, in the New Testament, hope usually comes with three different aspects. It, it has an expectation of something good that will happen in the future. There's the idea of trust in that future. And then there's also a third idea of patience in waiting upon that future. So the New Testament conception of what encompasses this idea of hope is really threefold, an expectation that something good is coming, I trust in that something good coming, and I'll wait patiently as I trust for that something good to come. All three things are there. Well, let's go back to the hope that he's referring to in verse 2 because what we're going to find out is that all three elements are there in that verse. You say, okay, well, show me. I will. What's the future expectation in verse 2? That Christ is going to appear. What is the trust in that future expectation in verse 2? That when he does appear, I will see him. I trust and believe in that. Where's the idea of patiently waiting in verse 2? I'm anticipating in verse 2 the day when I become like him. And that are the, th those are all the ideas bound up there in this concept of hope as John gets down into verse 3. Everyone who has this hope, you see, everyone who understands that Christ is coming, I'm going to be like him, and I eagerly await that event to occur. That's the hope. Now, it's interesting here, because the emphasis here in this phrase, everyone who has this hope fixed on him, the emphasis is not on hope, as much as I'm talking about it. It's not on the idea of that hope being fixed. The emphasis, you see, is actually on the two little words there in the text, on him. That is the emphasis of the text. So the idea is we have this hope, and it's necessary for us to have it in order to grow spiritually, but the emphasis of the text is that our hope is actually on him, the one who is perfect, the one who will appear, the one who will make us exactly who we need to be. You see, your hope, it's all bound up in your identity in Christ. It's not just a generic hope. There is nothing in you, about you, or around you to cause you to have any reason to hope. But you see, there is everything within Christ, about Christ, and from Christ that provides you with all the hope that you need to power your sanctification. So, do you believe that His work is going to be finished in you someday? Do you believe that He who began a good work in you will be faithful to finish it? If you do, then don't cease from your efforts today. Instead, double down and strengthen your faith. Take hope and refuge, not in the greatness of all you're accomplishing, but in your hope in that which He is accomplishing in you. You see, your hope's in Him, not in yourself. And that is why this hope matters. So now that we've seen what this hope is, let's ask that question. Why does this hope matter? Because it's very personal, and therefore it is the key to your personal holiness. In verse 3, there's a very interesting shift that takes place. Verses 1 and 2 are all about us and we, as he talks to believers in general. Here, it's very specific. 
In verses 1, he has said, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us. Beloved, now we are children of God. Not yet appeared, it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. We will see him. But you get down to verse 3, and there's a very distinct shift. And every one individually who has this hope fixed on him does this. So why does this hope matter? This hope matters because it's individual. And now we begin to see that he is drawing out the responsibility that you have directly before God the Father as one of his children. The impact of you being listed as one of his children is that you now individually, apart from everybody else sitting in this room, have a responsibility to trust in him. He uses it, this idea of hope, on purpose here. He's saying it's, we will, the hope is in the fact that we will be like him and it's tied to the present event that now we are his children even now and, and that's grounded back in a past event. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. You see, in the past, God loved us to make us his children today to eventually conform us down the road into the future to become like him. And that is the hope that each one of us must have now. This is personal now for us. This idea of hope, it matters because, you see, if you're still hoping, it means that you haven't yet arrived. If you're not hoping, it means that either you're not alive or you have arrived. And none of us here this morning would say, looking back over the scope of our life this week, I've arrived, I've made it, my sanctification was perfectly accomplished this week. I know I would not say that, and I know none of you would as well. And so the reality is, if I have not yet arrived, then I must be hoping in the future day when I'll be made perfect. And if that hope does not exist in my heart, it begs the question, was I ever made alive to begin with? Because the natural result of the person who's feeling the pain of sanctification is that they look forward and hope with great faith and anticipation to what God will do someday in the future. You see, until you stand before him, there is always more to do. You, standing independently, will never have arrived. There is always room for improvement, and therefore there is always room to pin your hopes on him, as the passage says. So, if hope is so important to the process of sanctification, if I must have hope in order to be motivated to, to become what God is making me to be, then how do we get it? That's the third question we must ask as we seek to strengthen our faith. How do we get it? And let me just give you the short answer because John's already given it to us. He says, look back to Christ. That is the prescription of verse 2. We've already been reminded. He says there in verse 2, and we know. He's reminding us now. He says, don't forget. Don't forget that you know that when you appear, you will be like him. Why? And this is so important. Because you will see him just as he is. The way you empower your hope, the way you gain greater hope, the way your faith is strengthened is as you see Christ. 
You see, ultimately, it's going to be that perfect vision of the person of Christ that is going to transform you into His image. And one day when you stand before Him in heaven and see Him perfectly, you will be like Him because you'll, you will have seen Him perfectly just as He is. And so today, if you would grow in your hope, if you would grow in your sanctification and your faith, you must see Christ more clearly than you've seen Him before. You must seek to know Him. You must seek to gaze upon Him and make Him the sole focus of your spiritual life. See, what John is saying here in these verses is that the clearer your vision of Christ, the stronger your hope in Him becomes. And the stronger your hope in Him becomes, the greater the effort you'll have to make in your sanctification. And You can flip that around. If you would have a greater strength to fight your sin and to love holiness, then strengthen your faith. To strengthen your faith, increase your exposure to Jesus Christ. For in Christ, you begin to fully comprehend the love of God for you and the magnitude of what He's done in bringing you into His family. The stronger the vision of Christ, the greater the faith. The greater the faith, the stronger the hope. And a strong hope is the best useful motivation in the process of sanctification. We can ask the question, well, how often am I supposed to do this? How often am I supposed to be strengthening my faith and engaging in this hope? It's interesting because there's one more technical observation that we should make on this point before we move on, and it will help us to understand. Go back to verse 3. Everyone who, and here's the word, has this hope, That word has is a present word. It means that it's supposed to be happening continuously, all the time. It's not an event that you do once in the past. I've seen Christ, I know what I need to know, and now I'm good to go. It's not an event that's supposed to be happening sporadically, like once or twice a day. This is an event that is supposed to be continuously happening. That's the force of the action here in this section. It is ongoing. You really could translate this most effectively as is having, right? Everyone who is having this hope does the following. It's ongoing. It's unbroken. You must constantly, regularly be going back to clarify your vision of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of going to a national park. You know, we could call it the Grand Canyon, for instance. I know they have these there. But you know those gigantic national park binoculars that they have at most national parks to be able to see more closely something that's very far off? And chances are, if you're out of shape, you can't get down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon because if you try, you'll die. Last time I was there, the park ranger stopped me on the way down. I was about a half mile down the trail. And she says, you are going back now, right? And I said, yes, what makes you ask? Because you don't have any water, fool. (laughs) So back to the top I went, the binoculars come out. I wasn't trying to go down to the bottom, just to be clear. I just wanted to go a little ways in, but I was stopped by the park police. But you see, those National Park binoculars, the thing with those is that you always have to adjust them. I mean, they look really expensive, but they've got to be super cheap. Because every time you look through them, and even as you're looking through them, they, con- they constantly are losing their focus, right? 
there's that little dial on the top that you constantly are having to turn and twist because wind or, or water in the air or the light, the distance, as you turn them, they fall out of focus. They, they, all those things throw those things out of focus. And, and to use them well, you've constantly got to fiddle with the dial. And when you get it right, wow, look at the view. And then out it goes. <laughs> you see, that's the idea here is that your vision of Christ right now is dim, it's blurred, it's obscured because of where you live and who you are. And you need to see him clearly, which means that constantly you must be gazing through those binoculars. Don't take your eyes away to look around. There's not much here to see. Look through them to him and do whatever you have to do to spin that dial to see him clearly and get the obstacles out of the way because you see a weak commitment to holiness is always, always tied to a dim view of Jesus Christ. And a clear view of Christ is always connected to a strong desire for holiness. And that is why Paul says here, strengthen your faith, take heart, and have hope. Because it's that hope, it's that faith that will enable and motivate and allow your sanctification to progress. You must see him clearly. And when you see him clearly, you'll have hope. And it is that hope that will then propel you on into step two of verse 3, to then purify your life. Everyone who has this hope does the following, purifies himself just as he himself is pure. If you'd increase the effectiveness of your sanctification, increase your faith, look to Christ and increase your level of hope in what he is going to accomplish within you. And if you have that hope secured within you, which we could spend the rest of the hour talking about this New Testament idea of hope, because it is very important. He says, then you will begin to purify your life. And that's the next step that he gives us here in our sanctification as it relates to our responsibility for our sanctification. Purify your life. Now, let's talk about this for a little bit. What does it mean to purify your life? And let's just ask some questions about this idea of purifying your life. Number one, what is this idea of purity that John is talking about here in verse 3. What is this purity? It's an interesting word because it's the only time in the book where the word pure is used. Now, the word righteous, righteousness, light versus darkness are printed all over these pages like tracks through the text. But this is the only time in the whole book that John uses this word pure which means that we ought to be paying special attention to it. So let's do that. Pure. In the Greek language, there are two words for pure. And this is a little technical, but it's going to be really important, so bear with me. The first word is a word that you can say as katharos. It means to, it's really that idea of cathartic, right? The cathartic, the catharsis, where something is purified. That's where our English word comes from. But it means to wash something clean. It is the process of external purification. The other word for pure or purity is the word hagnos, which means to actually be clean. Whereas katharos is talking about washing something externally and making it clean, hagnos is referring to the inherent quality of actually being clean. See, hagnos is often used to describe the inherent purity of a deity. 
It means internal moral purity. It doesn't mean to make yourself pure. It means to actually be pure. It's, it, and in that way, it goes much beyond the idea of an external conformity or just the right kind of behavior. It is innocent, wholehearted purity. When used of people, it refers to internal moral purity rather than just external righteous behavior. You say, okay, why are you giving me a lexical study on two Greek words? Because only one of those words is used here in this text, and it's the word hagnos, this idea of internal purity, this idea of the inherent quality of who you are as being someone who is pure. And at, at first blush, we would seem to think that he's telling us external purity, go do the right things. Everyone who has hope fixed on him purifies himself and does the right things that God expects. And, and that is true, but that is not what he is saying here. It means that John is going far beyond a command to just act in a holy way. He's not just saying to act like you're righteous. He's saying to actually bring yourself into alignment with who you inherently actually are. You see, you are inherently pure now because of your life in Christ. So be who you are. Who you are is derived in who Christ is. And since he is inherently pure, you must be as well. You must bring yourself into alignment with the person of Jesus Christ. You see, your life is now hid with Christ in God, as Ephesians tells us. And since both Christ and God are pure, and since verse 2 and 1 have already told us that you are now his children... You must bring your life into alignment with the purity that defines him inherently. This is who he is, and therefore it is who you are to be as well. Not just the way you're to act, it's the way you are to actually be. That is what this purity is. It's far more than just doing the right thing. It's the definition of who you actually are. What is it that defines you? if we pulled out the transcript of your life as supporting evidence from this past week, how would you be defined? Would it be like verse 3, where you have demonstrated this inherent purity that is consistent with the person of Christ since your life is now hid with him, in him, with God? This is what the purity is. So now we have to ask, why do we need this purity? There's a very simple answer. Because it's the reason that Christ gave himself up for us. Turn over with me to Titus chapter 2. Very clear statement made here about the importance of having this kind of purity in our own lives. Titus 2.12, well, let me really start back in verse 11, I guess, and we'll go down through verse 15. Just listen to this statement and listen for that key word of purity. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us now to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed, oh, here it is, hope, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And why did he come? 
Why do we have hope in his appearing? Why did he come to begin with? Verse 14, For he is the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. He says, you see, Christ, the reason this is important, this idea of purity is important, the reason you should bring yourself into alignment with who Jesus Christ is, short answer is because that's the reason Christ came to begin with. And you're to have hope in that. He uses that word there in Titus chapter 2, zealous. It's a state of passionate commitment, enthusiastic support, ardent patriotism. It's a, it's a full-throated pursuit of a goal with abandonment or abandonment of self-interest. That just brings some emotional color back to the command here in verse 3 of 1 John 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. Titus tells us the reason you're to do this is because Christ gave himself up for this very purpose. And the way you're supposed to do it is zealously. You zealously pursue this purity. You see, you can't sit around dreaming about ending up in heaven without there actually being any ramifications upon the way you live within this world. John's point is very simple in connecting this idea of hope to the idea of purity, and it's this. Doctrine always has moral implications. If you cling to the truth that there is a future hope, then that hope comes with a present implication. The possession of hope produces purity, and there is no exception to that rule. And there's an important observation we can make here in verse 3. It's the fact that John says, and everyone who has this hope on him, purifies, what's the next word? Purifies himself. Again, very distinctly independent and singular in its focus down now on you. It implies that there's an awareness of your need as you stand before God's holiness as seen in the person of Christ. You say, I thought I've already been made pure. Didn't he make me pure when he justified me? What more is there for me to do? See, sanctification is never the grounds for entry into the kingdom of God, but it is always the result of membership in that kingdom. And this is the difference between what we know as positional sanctification and practical or progressive sanctification. You see, you do stand before God now, and when he looks at you, he sees the purity of Christ within you. You have been justified. You have been made positionally sanctified before God. That's what John, Jesus says in Matthew 5 when he says, only the righteous will inherit the kingdom of God. But then there's also this idea of practical sanctification, where you must now go to work on yourself, where you put off your sinfulness. You put on the righteousness of Christ. The short story is that your identity in Christ is the reason why the pursuit of holiness is so important. If you know Him, if you have hope in your future with Him, if you've been faithful to be walking with a strong faith, then you will go to work now to pattern your life after Him. And that's what John says in verse 3. Everyone who has this hope on Him purifies himself just as he, Christ, is pure. So, now to get really practical, 
How do we get purity? If we've defined it, if we've seen why it's important, how do we get it? There are really three motivators that are given to us in this passage, and we'll pull some other pieces in to help us understand what we are now to go and do in order to pursue this purity. The first is that you are to exercise a full reliance upon the person of Christ. You see in verse 2, it's going to be the person of Christ who ultimately makes you perfect like him. And therefore, there is no way to progress in your sanctification apart from him. You must walk in full reliance upon him. John chapter 15. Let's turn over there together. Because Jesus explains this very clearly to all of his disciples, one of whom was the apostle John sitting there. In verse 5, he says it very clearly, apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you would progress in your holiness, you have to do it in reliance on him. And here is how he explains it. He says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. And then just to make sure we don't misunderstand the metaphor, he explains it again. I am the vine, he says, and you are the branches. This is full-on literary analysis of his own metaphor. He who abides in me and I in him will bear fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And skipping down to verse 9, Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love, and if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have come to keep my Father's commandments and abide in his love bringing the whole thing full circle back to the idea of abiding in the love of God for us. And when you walk in reliance upon that love and the greatest manifestation of the Father's love for you as seen in the person of Christ, now you begin to understand what it is to be loved by God, to love Him in return, to walk with full reliance upon Him and to love His commandments, to not ever find them burdensome for you. You see, it is His love for you, 1 John 3, 1, that causes you to love Him in return. And it is that love for Him that then motivates your obedience to conform to His image, verse 2. And it's that confirmation that causes you to walk in holiness. You see, Jesus isn't just the source of your purity. He, in connection to Him, He is the means by which you become pure now. And that is the reason for the statement, he is pure. It's parallel to the idea of he is love. His purity is inherent to his nature. And now as you abide in the vine, as you walk with him in reliance upon him, it is supposed to be your inherent quality as well. So if you would find this purity, the first thing you must do is walk in reliance upon the person of Christ. The second thing you must do is walk with a full awareness of Christ. We find that in verse 3. 
where he says, if you would have this hope, then you will purify yourself. The implication being that if you have the hope, A, then you will do B, the purification. Why? Because you are aware that you belong to the one in whom you have your hope. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says it this way, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. See, when you have an awareness of who Jesus Christ is and who you are in Him, then there are natural implications that flow from that, just as we've seen in verse 3. When you walk in an awareness of who Christ is, you begin to understand the ramification that you must now purify yourself as well. Purification is the means to become like Him now, and that's very important. It's why He tacks on that phrase at the end, just as He is pure. He's saying, do not divorce the process of your sanctification from your awareness of who Jesus Christ is. Keep the reality of who he is before you consistently. One commentator says, the more intimate the believer's fellowship with God, who is light, the more conscious he becomes of his need to cleanse himself from all that is moral darkness. James 4.8 says it this way, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Therefore, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says, walk in reliance upon Christ. Walk with an awareness of Christ, and then walk in full efforts as unto Christ. I mean, there is a very active command given to us here in verse 3. We can't ignore that. It's not as though if we rely upon Christ enough, and if we are aware of him enough that we just don't have to do anything. There is still an effort that must be made. We are to go to work, right? You see, faith without works is useless, as James tells us. Faith always goes to work. When you hope in the coming conformity of Christ, the natural result is your purification. Again, I bring you back to the idea of this present tense. The habit of your life must be that of being purified. While you wait, here is the habit that you must form. Your hope is continuous. Your purification is continuous. And so John's admonition here in verse 3 in commanding us to be pure, he is saying to us to go out and take out a hunting license on your sin. You have been authorized. No, you have been commanded to go hunt it down and kill it. Colossians 3.5, we're commanded, put to death the members of your earthly body. Romans 8.13, if by reliance upon the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. So if you would be pure, go to work on killing your flesh. The way you do that is with an awareness of Jesus Christ, a full reliance upon Him and the power of His Spirit to bring you into alignment with the nature of who he is because that ultimately is your greatest hope, right? We look forward to seeing the day when he returns. That is our hope, when we are made like him, having seen him just as he is. These are the steps to spiritual growth given to us here. Strengthen your faith. 
Look forward to the day when He is coming and will accomplish His work in you and then purify your life. That's the ramification of the fact that God loves you. And you now love Him. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the profound truth that even just such a few small words in the text of Scripture can have upon our life, that we are to live in a way that is pure before You, that we are to live in full reliance upon You, hoping for the day when You return and perfect us. That is the day we long for and the day that we look forward to. And so even this morning now, we redouble our hope within You. We see You and we hope in that day. And we desire to to see our lives brought into alignment by the power of your Spirit with who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.